Hello, everyone, and welcome to the LSE for our online event today, The Power to Say Yes, The Right to Say No. I am Dr. Rishita Nandagiri, and I'm an ESRC postdoctoral fellow at LSE's Department of Methodology. Today's event is organized by LSE's Global Health Initiative, which is a cross-departmental and interdisciplinary platform linking and strengthening global health research at the LSE. Do look us up on our social media channels, and please do join us um, at the GHI if we host a lot of events quite similar to this one. And I'm really pleased to be here today and to welcome Dr. Natalia Kanem to the LSE. Uh, Dr. Kanem is the United Nations Undersecretary General and the Executive Director of UNFPA, the United Nations Population Fund. UNFPA is the, U the UN Sexual and Reproductive Health and Rights Agency. And Dr. Kanem was appointed by UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez in, in 2019 bringing more than 30 years of strategic leadership experience in preventative medicine, public and reproductive health, social justice, and philanthropy. She began her research career in academia with the John Hopkins and Columbia University Schools of Medicine and Public Health. Today, Dr. Kenan will discuss why bodily autonomy and sexual reproductive health and rights, SRHR, are fundamental to advancing human dignity and equality, prosperity and peace, and sustainable development that leaves no one behind. For those of you who are Twitter users and are in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Health. This online event is being recorded and we will hopefully be, um, be able to make available a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. As usual, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Dr. Kanem to submit your questions. Please use the Q&A feature that is at the bottom of your screen. Uh, the questions will be submitted to me, um, and I will pose as many as I can to our speaker. Uh, please do let us know your name and your affiliation when you pose your question, um, and we're particularly keen to hear from students and from our alumni as well. Uh, but for now, uh, I am delighted to hand over to Dr. Kanem. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Rashita, for the kind introduction, and my thanks to the London School of Economics Global Health Initiative. It's really a pleasure to be here with all of you. Somewhere today, at this moment, an adolescent girl is waking up. She'll discover that she's expected to undergo a rite of passage, forever to be wounded by female genital mutilation, FGM. Somewhere else, another girl is being told to get dressed because today is her wedding day. She is scarcely 13 years of age. And a woman has been walking for a couple of hours headed to her village health center to seek contraception. When she arrives, she'll be sternly informed that there will be no prescription without her husband's consent. Allow me then to get straight to the heart of the matter of the power to say yes the right to say no. Who is the owner of a girl's body? Is a woman's body her own? Is it her right to say yes or say no? I've just returned from a humanitarian mission to Yemen where I spoke to young girls and pregnant women who had had to flee for their lives and seek protection at a UNFPA supported shelter. They told harrowing stories of over six years of grinding conflict, now made worse by COVID-19 and a looming famine. 
Families are desperate and many are marrying off their daughters, very young. I met Alia at 13. She had been given to a 30 year old man. When I told my father I didn't want to get married, she told me. They said, by getting married, I would have a better life, but my life only got worse. She complained when her husband sold off her wedding jewelry. In response, he beat her. When she ran back to her father's house for protection, he beat her too and chased her back to the new husband. I had nowhere to go, she said. Fortunately, a kind neighbor phoned the UNFPA-supported hotline and helped Alia to escape. Now, Alia lives at a locally-run UNFPA shelter where she attends training workshops and receives psychosocial support to help her recovery. And she dreams of returning to school one day. Her story is not unique. Uh, it's, it's one that I've heard repeatedly from girls in Yemen and time and time again in many countries around the world. In essence, the abrupt disruption of the lives of women and girls whose bodies have been disrespected as belonging to them. A recent UNFPA study in 57 countries found that nearly half the women lack the power to make their own decisions about whether to have sexual relations with their partner, about the use of contraception, or even when to see a doctor or nurse. Often these very intimate decisions about their own bodies are taken out of women's hands by another, their male partner, their family, their societies, even their governments. Fundamentally, bodily autonomy is about power and agency. It's about choice. Above all, it's about human dignity. Now, intertwined is the right to bodily integrity, and that's the ability to live free from physical acts to which one does not consent. And it's gratifying to see significant gains in advancing such rights in recent decades. Today, more women than ever have access to modern contraception. More girls attend school. More communities are abandoning child marriage, female genital mutilation, and other harmful practices. I applaud the activism to stand up to sexual harassment and sexual abuse in all its forms, from the global hands-off and Me Too movements, to important local campaigns like Don't Look Away in Sri Lanka, which aims at calling out harassment in buses and public transport. These growing movements show us that change is possible, that UNFPA's goal of an end to gender-based violence by the year 2030, and that of the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres in his call to member states for peace in the home, that these are within reach. Still, for too many, especially women and girls, life is fraught with violations of their bodily autonomy and integrity. We see the desperation when a lack of contraceptive choice leads to unintended pregnancy. We see it in the unspeakable, intolerable bargain to exchange unwanted sex for a home or food or aid. We see it in life derailing practices such as child marriage. Autonomy is violated when someone of a diverse sexual orientation or gender identity cannot walk down a street 
without fear of assault or humiliation. When someone with a disability is stripped of their right to self-determination, to be free from violence, to enjoy a safe and satisfying sexual life, it's a violation. And some violations such as rape may be criminalized, but not always prosecuted. Others go unchallenged, reinforced by community norms, practices, and laws. Marital rape, for example, still legal in 34 countries. And in some places, a rapist escapes penalty by marrying his victim. During war and conflict, what we're seeing now is women's body literally becoming a battleground. Rape and sexual slavery are horrifically being used as tactics of war. And if you're paying attention, you know that femicide, deaths of women, too often at the hands of a domestic partner, is rampant, as is impunity for the perpetrator. Now, with COVID-19, women and these issues are seeing setbacks even further. Sexual and gender-based violence has skyrocketed around the world. Child marriage, female genital mutilation, adolescent pregnancy, which were once receding, are again on the rise. UNFPA projects that progress towards ending gender-based violence and female genital mutilation could be reduced by one-third due to the pandemic. Now, the far-reaching consequences of the pandemic have disrupted programs to end child marriage by 2030, which could result in an additional 13 million child marriages that otherwise would not have occurred. Overstretched health systems find it too easy to scale back sexual and reproductive health services, which are often deemed less essential. At times, COVID-related movement restrictions and fear of getting infection keep women from seeking care they need. UNFPA is estimating that almost 12 million women lost access to voluntary family planning services since the pandemic began, already resulting in almost one and a half million and 1.4 million unintended pregnancies. And analysis of six countries in Latin America and the Caribbean shows that it's adolescent girls who face the greatest barriers in accessing services, leading to projections of half a million additional teen pregnancies over the course of the pandemic. Within Africa, Kenya and other countries already have seen spikes in teenage pregnancy with school closures and movement restrictions leaving girls more vulnerable to sexual coercion and violence. As children <clears throat> stay home and family members fall ill, it is women who bear the burden of care. Economists report women increasingly dropping out, rolling back decades of hard-won progress in women's labor force participation. And even before the pandemic, mind you, every single day, women and girls were logging some 12 billion hours of unpaid care work around the world. <clears throat> three times more than men, and none of it accounted for in GDP. When women have an income, abundant evidence shows that they, more likely than men, will invest in their families and communities, 
thereby strengthening economies and making them more resilient. Supportive policies, policies that enhance women's opportunities and empowerment make sense to the benefit of everyone. The realization of bodily autonomy is at the heart of sexual and reproductive health and rights and all we do at UNFPA. It's our purpose. It's also the topic of our flagship State of World Population Report this year, which we'll release on April 14th. Bodily autonomy is a precondition for reaching UNFPA's three ambitious aims, our three zeros by the year 2030. Zero unmet need for family planning, zero preventable maternal deaths, and zero gender-based violence and harmful practices, all based on quality census and survey data to ensure that no one is left behind or left out. These three zeros, again, as regards contraception, which is empowerment of women, mother and newborn survival, and an end to sexual and gender-based violence, underpin the whole of gender equality and they bear on world success in making all of the 17 sustainable development goals and achievement. As the United Nations Sexual and Reproductive Health Agency, UNFPA's programs are guided by the program of action of the ICPD, which was the International Conference on Population and Development, a program of action unanimously adopted by member states in Cairo in 1994. It made empowerment and autonomy of women a basis for global action towards sustainable economic and social progress. As the world's largest provider of donated contraceptives in low and middle income countries, UNFPA works to strengthen health systems and to dismantle barriers to services. I am proud that we're the leading advocate for youth-friendly services because young people do wish to handle their sexuality responsibly. And information about sexuality and reproductive health is empowering. Now, the nurses and midwives that UNFPA trains and deploys, in my opinion, are heroes. They're true angels on the face of this earth. They willingly cross the river and move mountains to make life-saving reproductive health services more accessible, more affordable to women, even in the most remote and underserved areas. So working jointly with UNICEF and with civil society, with the private sector, UNFPA has been helping to end practices, as I mentioned, like uh, child marriage, like female genital mutilation, and fundamentally, we work to uphold girls' autonomy and protect them from violations of their bodily integrity. Because part of the solution is a girl confidently knowing that she has rights from an early age. UNFPA advocates for girls to complete their schooling, including comprehensive sexuality education. Girls and boys too must know about healthy relationships, about consent, and they must be equipped with the vital knowledge to protect themselves from unintended pregnancy, prevention, all too commonplace, violence, and also protect themselves from 
HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. And during times of crisis, UNFPA leads coordination of the humanitarian community's gender-based violence prevention and response efforts. We are passionate, we are relentless in our advocacy for greater progress because despite gains in advancing sexual and reproductive health and rights and bodily autonomy in the recent decades, the pace of change is not fast enough. We simply cannot afford to wait another 25 or 50 years. Now, at the recent Nairobi summit commemorating the 25th anniversary of the Cairo ICPD, leaders from around the world, from presidents to the grassroots, youth activists, private sector CEOs, pledged to pick up that pace. They envisioned a world where every pregnancy is intentional because every woman has voluntary access to the contraceptive she wants and where no woman dies giving life. They foresaw an end to violence and to practices that harm women and girls. And they made more than 1,250 concrete commitments to turn that vision into reality. The march from Cairo to Nairobi continues onward. This movement for universal sexual and reproductive health and rights and bodily autonomy gains further momentum this year as the Generation Equality Forum in Mexico and France will accelerate progress since the historic Beijing Women's Conference in 1995. Gender inequality is a most insidious and pervasive impediment to bodily autonomy. Gender unequal norms and attitudes buttress the power imbalance that constrains women's autonomy. And these norms and attitudes drive the expectation that women will defer to their husband, to their partner in all aspects of their lives. And we see these harmful norms and attitudes reverberating in the increased political pushback against women's rights. The personal is political. Issues even tangentially related to gender equality and sexual and reproductive health and rights do not have universal buy-in, shall I say, and are perpetually subject to intense negotiations in multilateral spaces. I see growing polarization, rising populist nationalism, and the space for civil society ever shrinking. More and more, we witness the regressive forces coming together to counter progress for women and girls whose health and rights are traded in a game of geopolitical football. Yet, despite the strong headwinds in many places, there is an even stronger movement pushing forward of government, civil society, grassroots activists, businesses, community leaders, and faith-based organizations whose energy and commitments, especially coming out of the Nairobi summit, speak to forward movement. And we see it in the follow-up actions that are being taken to make those commitments to women and girls real where it matters most, which is in countries and on the ground. Our UN Secretary General has called for a renewed and inclusive multilateralism to meet the complex global challenges we face. And there's optimism despite COVID-19. When women and girls are able to make the most fundamental choices about their bodies, they gain in terms of autonomy. Yes, society also gains too. 
through advances in health and education, income and safety. These add up to a world of greater justice and human well-being, which benefits us all. So how can we ensure that everyone is able to exercise these fundamental rights and choices? First, uproot the harmful attitudes and gender norms that hold women back. This requires slow, steady work in community after community, and it is possible. Just uh, a few weeks ago, the London writer Justina Kayende laid down a challenge in her poem for the International Day for the Elimination of Female Genital Mutilation, quoting her, not everything we inherit is a gift to be passed on. We gain more than we lose when we choose to move on. Another thing, women and girls must claim their rights. States must uphold these rights and men must be willing to step forward and step away from dominating roles that privilege their power and their choices over women's. Adolescent boys will need far more positive notions of what constitutes manhood during a time of life when harmful gender norms start to crystallize. The writer Chimamande Ngozi Adichie puts it, masculinity is a hard, small cage, and we put boys inside this cage. I believe it's long past time to free boys from it. Comprehensive sexuality education for boys age appropriate instills the values of respect, equality, and consent. In UNFPA clubs in Zambia, adolescent girls and boys can safely express their fears and aspirations and learn how to better relate to one another. In Niger and across West Africa now, UNFPA runs very popular community husband schools, Ecole des Maris, that constructively engage men and boys and cultural and religious leaders in support of family planning and women's participation. In the country of Georgia, UNFPA supports a program called Men Care, which promotes men's involvement as loving fathers and equitable household caregivers. And in the Sahel region of West Africa, UNFPA and the World Bank partner with local communities to support women's economic empowerment, which involves making family planning available voluntarily for women. And the countries involved are reaping a demographic dividend through a package of interventions to keep girls in school while delaying marriage and childbearing. Let me also mention that research shows us that for every $4.60 US invested in an adolescent girl's physical, mental, sexual, and reproductive health, the return will be at least 10 times as much in benefits to society. And lastly, uh, I'll mention that action is needed to tackle laws and policies that reinforce discriminatory norms. The Republic of Korea, for example, has had reform in labor laws. This was a key driver in shifting old norms about son preference, about the value of girls, and about the age at marriage. Most economies are structured to concentrate resources and decision-making in a few privileged 
hands of Adam, hands that mostly belong to men. The Me Too movement and surveys show us just how bad it is for women in terms of choice and autonomy when it comes to the power to say no, ending impunity for sexual violence and harassment in all forms is essential, it's overdue. Women's empowerment and autonomy requires substantial and sustained investment. National gender equality action plans and institutions remain chronically underfunded, and that's true also for women's groups on the front lines of providing vital protection services that survivors of gender-based violence need. UNFPA with Johns Hopkins University and other academics partners have estimated that it'll take investments of about 264 billion US dollars, which is about $26 billion a year through 2030 to achieve the three zeros, to end the unmet need for family planning, to stop preventable maternal deaths and end gender-based violence. Of that total $264 billion sum, only 42 billion is currently projected to be provided through donors in the form of usual uh, development assistance over the course of the next decade. Meaning that the remainder, the new investment required of $222 billion will need to come from a combination of shifts in domestic government spending through additional international development assistance, the private sector, civil society, and philanthropy. These resources will likely be even harder to come by as countries grapple with the economic fallout from COVID-19. The impact of the pandemic on aid budgets and other types of development assistance isn't yet clear, but there are worrying signs. According to the OECD Global Outlook on Financing for Sustainable Development 2021, private financing has already collapsed, falling $700 billion in 2020. And while ODA oversees development assistance specifically to end uh, for specifically towards the sexual and reproductive health sector, did see gradual increases over the years. It peaked in 2017 at a little over 11 billion US dollars. And by 2019, that support had fallen back to just under $8 billion. The United Kingdom, which in recent years has been UNFPA's largest and most steadfast bilateral donor, just announced cuts to its global aid budget. And while thankfully the UK remains a very strong political supporter of UNFPA and our mandate for sexual and reproductive rights, these budget cuts will be felt keenly by UNFPA and they will reverberate throughout our sector. So the economic and financial uncertainty is why we all have to strive to get the partnerships piece of the equation right. For us, we build on our relationships with governments, with international financial institutions, with communities and the private sector to help countries unlock and implement the financing that's so needed by vulnerable women and girls. Data, also key. It's said that only what gets measured gets done. And if so, there is cause for concern when it comes to bodily autonomy. Just 13% of countries have a dedicated budget to collect and analyze gender statistics. 
And that's an information gap or an information abyss, if you will, that makes it very difficult to develop services and policies to effectively support gender equality and autonomy. So issues like gender-based violence and unpaid care work remain invisible, under the radar, uncounted, and unaddressed. Gender disaggregated data for adolescents and for socially excluded girls are particularly scarce. And data invisibility also affects LGBTI people of sexual diversities, people with disabilities, anyone who's discriminated against or denied autonomy because of their race, their ethnicity, or their economic status. We can do better. Governments, social and economic institutions, communities, families, and men can all do better. I will challenge you to please challenge discrimination wherever and whenever you encounter it. Don't be complacent about it and don't apologize or be complicit. It also means keeping up pressure on governments to act, holding leaders accountable for making good on commitments to gender equality, to official development assistance and domestic spending. I'm very happy about the presence of so many young people here today. Use your power. You are more connected than any generation before and your voice and channels raise awareness, challenge harmful attitudes, norms, and practices, and you're vociferous in your demands for inclusion, for equality, and for there to be change. Our commitment to social responsibility, to ethics, to climate action, to making societies and the world a better place continually inspires me. It reassures me that we will succeed in living our values transforming the balance of power, upholding individual human rights. That's fundamental to our common humanity. And as a matter of practice, also essential, if we're to conquer today's biggest challenges from poverty and inequality to sexism, racism, and the climate crisis, whereas these challenges historically are the result of decisions primarily taken by certain powerful men, always they've had a disproportionate impact upon women and girls. Therefore, women and girls know what works and they must be fully part of the solution. The power to say yes, the right to say no. My purpose today was to convince you to help stop the annihilation of the spirit that lack of bodily autonomy represents for women and girls and I pray I've succeeded. Working hard for full equality for all of us in all our beautiful diversities, the United Nations stands together with you, walking the path to peace towards a safer and more just world. A world where all peoples live in dignity, where a girl will wake up knowing that she alone owns her body that her society will protect her. And that as she says yes to the future that beckons, it is a future that is hers to determine. Adelante, forward, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Kanem. I think if we were um, all together in person, there would have been a resounding round of applause, but would have taken a little while to 
to settle down. Um, so I'll, I'll take advantage of this virtual space and um, uh, while we wait for more questions from the audience, if you haven't asked yet, please use that Q&A button um, and please tell us and remember to tell us your name and your affiliation as well when you do so. Uh, so while we wait for some of the questions to, to filter through, I thought I'll take um, the opportunity to kick off with some initial questions if that's okay. Um, I think I was really struck by your remarks around gender equality in particular and, and how it's tied to the broader conditions of our society, um, which requires supportive policies um, to, to engender it. And I think particularly so around governance and in the kind of public health responses that we're seeing at the moment as well. And I think there's been this large critique at the moment uh, to how COVID-19 responses in, in many countries at first didn't adequately account for the gendered inequalities um, that people experience, and especially so at the intersections of things like race, class, age, disability. Um, and the, the policies in place, like lockdown, um, and as you say, like the burden of reproductive labor, jobs, financial insecurity, all of this has had a disproportionate impact on these groups and communities. And all of this was occurring at the same time as the continued reassurance from governments and groups about their commitment to, to gender equality. Um, and for me, this, there's such a paradox here because, and, and how then can we reconcile this paradox? Um, especially because there's been this push and this urgent response to COVID-19 that it's you know, under urgency, we need a policy and we react really quickly. But these policies have somehow ended up being gender neutral or genderless. Um, while at the same time, there is this the language of commitment to uh, a gender sensitive response. So how do we reconcile this or how do we cope with this? Well, you know, the observation is so real because the uh, fact is, as mentioned, women have had to take over childcare, elder care and care for the sick, drop out of the workforce and are getting hammered in terms of their income mm -hmm. because of the pandemic. Similarly, the health workforce itself is uh, predominantly female, about 70% uh, female globally. And the attention to PPEs for frontline health workers who were scared to take infection back to their families took uh, quite a while to rev up. I'll also say that, um, you know, while I didn't go into this in detail, the and I focused on young women in my remarks, elder women mm -hmm. are also bearing the brunt of the pandemic in uh, ways that again, are disrespectful of their human rights. One of the dilemmas I think Dr. Rashida is that even when law and policy is on the books, taking it off the paper and into real life is still a struggle. And it's still a gendered world where the essentiality of paying attention to women's health, women's bodies, women's reproductive needs can be shunted to the side. I'm very grateful that the World Health Organization is paying attention to this, but at the local level where it translates, there are years of these entrenched attitudes and norms which prevent women themselves from claiming their rights and uh, where the obstacles are lined up in front of them. The uh, Beijing Generation Equality Forum, uh, you know, for the 25th anniversary that I mentioned, I think is a source of greater popular 
uh, understanding that women's rights are human rights and that the ability to stick to uh, the law when it applies and to change the law when it hampers women is something that's under our control. I mean, these are human uh, creations. So ultimately, my hope is that uh, the weight of things like uh, sun preference and sex selection, which exists pretty much in, in, in every culture, the understanding that, you know, the uh, uh, 800, almost a thousand women who are dying in childbirth every day, that we can actually take actions that reverse this. This is, uh, this is part of the incentive for me to want every girl to be aware of her, her own rights to bodily autonomy. Thanks. Um, thank you. And I think on this idea of bodily autonomy, there's, I think, as it, while there is the individual level um, understanding of like access or the wielding of autonomy in relation to things like um, gender-based violence or intimate partner violence, um, or around access to sexual and reproductive health services, or the ability to make those decisions um, and enabling those personal autonomies. There's also, as you highlighted so clearly, the how this is embedded in the social and structural um, environments and those the relations that uh, that we also need to grapple with. Um, and how do we see? How can we uh, address not just the individual level interactions or or enhance those individual level abilities to claim autonomies and exercise them, but to shift social and structural spaces? Um, how, what are the ways in which we might be able to do that? Well, you know, I can give a number of quick examples, but fundamentally, it is a process, I believe, of the rights holder understanding their uh, own uh, rights mm -hmm. and, the, and, and owning the fact that they deserve to be able to, to exercise these rights. There is a very self-sacrificial attitude, which um, can be laudable um, in terms of altruism. But I've seen uh, over and over, for example, in settings of uh, humanitarian crisis, women will be sure that every other family member will eat first. They will be sure to uh, you know, accommodate uh, others before they look after themselves for the perspective on what shifts these uh, norms. Social movements have always been the bedrock of women's agency. And I think that yes, there is soft power, but there's also power in law and policy. Working with religious communities, for example, it's been very gratifying to see fatwas against uh, female genital mutilation and for uh, family planning. It's also very important, I think, for uh, women's groups to be funded because from locality to locality needs differ. And women actually do know a lot about making peace and having safe societies, but you know, it can be overwhelming and they can uh, be underrepresented as they are you know, in, in parliaments and as heads of state all over the world. What's also, I think, very important is for us to understand, and you know, this is what the Population Fund, I think, does very well, that there is a link between women's empowerment and social progress. 
So when we talk about the demographic dividend for countries which have high youth populations in Africa, Asia, parts of Latin America, uh, the empowerment of women, which fundamentally is education, even as a doctor, I always tout education as being most fundamental. Um, these are things that can transform swaths of the picture at scale, investing in young women's education. Now, uh, the last thing I'll say is that since time immemorial, there has been an understanding that might makes right and that women can be battered and uh, okay, we sweep it under the rug. This is a moment in history, I believe, where women are being vocal in standing up for themselves and for each other and in demanding an end to this really egregious affront, the crime of uh, you know, violence against women, sexual harassment of women, and to put a stop to it now. And I think the ability to raise all our voices in concert, that's what's going to make a difference. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I think, as you, as you were saying, there's, with like, funding women's groups um, and making sure that they're supported, um, and, and while you were speaking, um, as well, you were talking about aid flows and the ways in which um, aid distribution can sometimes be quite unequal as well. And I think for a long time, there have been a lot of calls, particularly from the global south, to decolonize development and aid and global health more broadly. And I think in the context of the pandemic, so many of these calls have become even more important that we respond to and, and uh, take seriously. Whether this is around approaches to the, the pandemic or say around the vaccines, around SRHR and these same questions of bodily autonomy, because I think they're unlinked um, in the kind of aid flows that we have, say aid conditionalities that were in place um, under certain previous administrations, let's say, that have affected SRHR quite, in quite drastic ways. Um, do you think that there's a need to reckon with how coloniality is embedded in this work and that we, it's almost a necessary precondition to enable that transformation of our societies? Well, the simple answer is yes, of course, but the complexity of the problem daunts people unnecessarily. The United Nations Charter is uh, you know, in its 76th year at this point, and it talks about equality of men, women, nations, large and small. The uh, question of the influence of history on the present is undeniable, but people are shapers of their own futures. So much has changed, you know, and I tried to give a few examples of how much progress has been made. Although I think it's important to focus on the fact that uh, there's a precarious balance Power concedes nothing without a demand, quoting Frederick Douglass. And when power is threatened, we see what we've seen, uh, you know, in the short term in recent years. Um, yet and still, yet and still, I believe that, uh, you know, with the trajectory that we've laid, with the better understanding of the harm that's done, with the clamor for equal rights. Again, I think, you know, when UNFPA declared zero gender-based violence, this was back in 2016, Me Too hadn't started happening yet. 
you know, people scratched their head and said, oh my gosh, isn't that ambitious? Well, our ambition is actually for full human dignity. Our ambition is actually for peace. All of this is intertwined. When Secretary General said peace in the home, and I'm so grateful for him for the 140 countries plus that have signed up for this call for against gender-based violence and for peace in the home, it should be a ceasefire because, you know, it's a lethal consequence, uh, potentially, violence against women. But it's also uh, the charring of the human spirit that I spoke about. It's the devaluation, which certain aspects of colonialism also tried to instill a sense of inferiority, a sense of deferring to others. Look, you know, I do believe in people being kind and in people being, uh, you know, deferring to each other in the sense of helping each other. But the structural expectation that you go to the end of the line, I mean, you know, when, how how much longer are we going to wait for that? Mm -hmm. So uh, my belief is really uh, that if data and evidence doesn't work for you and the data and evidence are abundant, then just your sense of fairness and human decency has to be called into question. I'm very grateful. You know, I mentioned some of these men's groups, which are taking up the position that this is, this is my family. This is my wife, my daughter, my neighbor, whoever it is. And um, I will speak in her defense. I'm happy to speak to these issues because I think liberation of women is liberation for all. And I'm talking about liberate your mind, the rest will follow. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much. Um, that's great. Um, uh, we've got a series of questions coming at us from the audience. So um, I'll, I'll try and um, compile them as I can. Um, so let me begin with Sebastian, who is an LSE master's student from Columbia, and he asks, how do you think UNFPA can support innovations that come from outside of the organization, um, particularly ones that can help strengthen the power to say yes and the right to say no? And relatedly, he asks, um, uh, how do we tie them then to the financial agenda? Because unfortunately, sometimes this is what is more relevant to policymakers. Um, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll connect that to another question um, from uh Sheng Che from UCL, who is also an LSE alumni, who asks, so how do we measure women's contribution to the GDP or the society beyond monetary uh, measures or or, um, metrics? Well, you know, I love these questions. And, you know, I'm not the oracle, but I'm happy to spark a conversation. And that's what this whole, um, you know, initiative on the part of LSE is about. When we think about global health, It's not just physical health, but that's a piece of it. It's also the whole Alma-Ata declaration of all types of health and spiritual health was in there too, by the way. So Mm -hmm. from my perspective, we measure women's contributions economically, of course, and we have to show the disparity and disadvantage, which is compounded by race in COVID. It's uh, Afro-descendant women and indigenous women who have suffered most, even in the bigger uh, 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 spectrum. So I think that we look at the contribution beyond the economy to the peace dividend. When we look at the 17 sustainable development goals, they cohere around an understanding that fundamentally 
ending hunger and poverty, right, is a piece of human dignity. And I think time and again, it's been shown that women will invest in their family. Women will preferentially buy those school uniforms and all the other types of things that they do. Now, in terms of supporting innovation, I also love this question. UNFPA actually has an innovation unit because change can come from anywhere. And just uh, in our work, we actually sponsor and uh, you know, encourage our young innovation fellows of UNFPA to go out there and take over the world when it comes to innovations in sexual and reproductive health around menstruation, so that period poverty disappears, so that uh, also the uh, shoving aside of girls as unclean, if you will, during their menstrual periods is understood in terms of natural biology. Every uh, few years in Nepal, girls will die because of menstruation huts where they're exposed to the elements. These are things that UNFPA helps to change and the innovators have also had great ideas. When I was in Yemen last week on a humanitarian mission, I took great delight and pride. UNFPA Sudan has adapted a three-wheeler tuk-tuk taxi with a long flatbed Mm -hmm. so that an ambulance will be available for rural women at a time when a normal, uh, well, they don't have a normal ambulance, but if they did, it would get stuck in the mud. So even with rains and floods and whatever, Mm -hmm. this tuk-tuk will be able to prevent things like fistula, an injury to the womb from occurring from prolonged labor where the woman can't get to help. And um, I think, you know, everything from the spectrum of big innovation, UNFPA working with uh, corporations like Philips and Merck to be able to bring uh, ultrasound technology in a mobile unit to that village in the hinterland, to that island uh, uh, nation that can be isolated. Very, very important to keep thinking ahead. One lamentation that I have is that in terms of the principles of contraception that women uh, can use, that women can choose, we really need more innovation in terms of uh, contraception in the hands of women. The long acting contraception is very, very popular because like I described, sometimes women have to walk so far. So if you can have an implant that will last for a couple of months or a year or more, this is something that's seen as very beneficial. So we're always looking for um, ideas. My last example will be in the realm of culture. And again, I think culture is an arbiter of social norms. So uh, UNFPA was very lucky to partner with Playing for Change, with Global Citizen, and to bring ideas about respect for women, for young people, for people of sexual diversities, for Afro-descendants in the cultural sphere through music um, in the last uh, 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 year, even during the pandemic. We really believe that things can be different and that we should look for ideas everywhere and uh, the momentum builds. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I'll I'll link, um, I'm gonna try and link some of these questions together. There's so many now. Um, So here's a question I think slightly tied uh, together. There's a question from Carlos Avina who asks, 
is sexual harassment and bodily integrity and autonomy related to cultural and societal issues or to poverty? Um, and if so, is poverty something that we need to be tackling? Um, which I'll tie to a question from Olivia Vincenti from the Women's Equality Party, um, who asks, how do you see the global economic system impacting bodily autonomy and sexual reproductive health and rights? Um, and I think both of them point to the, to the link between global economic policies and the system, as well as to how poverty is experienced and felt and how that's tied to SRHR and to bodily autonomy. Well, again, um, you know, our team will put some links into the chat for people to, uh, you know, see more depth on these issues, which really are important. And UNFPA is continually reviewing and publishing guidance. This year on April 14th, we'll unveil our uh, treatise on bodily autonomy, the state of world population report, and why we do feel it is so fundamental, literally, to world progress. When we think of uh, bodily autonomy and the loop through poverty, the 13-year-olds, and I met a number of them on my trip to uh, Yemen and Sudan over the past couple of weeks, who were 13 when they got married or younger, one was seven years old. And I put marriage in quotes because the issue of consent is fundamental, right? I talked about bodily integrity. When these people were married off against their will at a young age, the trap for poverty was set for them and it's going to be very hard for them to get out without a lot of help. Let's take the realm of the physical body. One of the women that I met was already a grandmother and she was 28 years old, right? Mm -hmm. So the toll of so much childbirth when you are yourself young, your bones are not formed. And you know, apart from the biology, I'm saying, your life chances are being truncated. Are you gonna be able to finish school and get to the top of the class? Are you going to be able to even have a job in the supermarket when your children, your priority, need to be looked after? And of course, it all fits with a pattern of patriarchy, where the man is going to say what your limits are, which is very wounding to, to the human spirit. So again, I just put the whole batch together and I say, child marriage, lack of education, the wheel is spinning, you're gonna be a mother, your children now are not going to have the opportunity of having a mature adult as their parent. So now their life chances immediately are also in the next generation called into question. And my dear, your risk of dying young is much, much higher than the person sitting next to you. So whether you call it teen pregnancy, not all these ladies are officially married. Many are in unions like in Panama where I come from we see in Central America a high rate of teen pregnancy and disparities for Afrodescendiente uh, women and girls, for indigenous women and girls. Now, uh, the other issue around the economy that I will say is that for many years now, since Cairo in 94 and even before um, Bendung and other conferences, multilateral conferences, express the understanding that the ability to control your fertility as a woman is empowering. The inability to control your fertility puts you at the behest of many life factors over which you are unlikely to be able to control. 
So I think uh, when I think of a healthier family, when I think of an educated girl, when I think of a more just and peaceful society, right? Mm -hmm. If every child is looked after, the temptations and the prodding to uh, child soldierism and all of these other really, really uh, huge setbacks in the world spectrum, fate. I mean, you know, if you're happy and healthy and you have an income, your son isn't going off to be a child soldier, I assure you of that. So why should her son be victimized doubly by this type of thing? UNFPA has studied uh, peace. Our study, along with the Secretary General's Peacebuilding Office called the Missing Peace, P-E-A-C-E, shows that young people are the missing element in peace. And uh, the Security Council's Resolution 2250, which um, you know was already 10 years old, speaks to the empowerment of young people as our hope for a world where uh, you know ceasefire and silencing of the guns will occur. Um, again, um, please check the links that our team is putting mm -hmm. in the chat because a lot of this is really interesting. We've partnered, uh, for example, with the World Food Program in terms of an innovation for food aid. A lot of women who are in humanitarian crisis, and they're more than ever before in the history of time, say that they do not wish to become pregnant when they're in a refugee camp or in an IDP camp for internally displaced people. So it is our duty as UNFPA and our uh, responsibility to respond and working with partners with civil society um, you know, we really do our best to be able to answer that need, to be able to bring safe spaces where women can decompress and actually look for help, including legal help and social work assistance and psychological counseling. Because in humanitarian crisis, there's a lot of stress. And again, women bear the brunt of these uh, violent uh, episodes. So to have a functioning economy, you need half the world to be able to function. And that's not the case right now. Thank you so much. Um, are there any last things you'd like to say or any last comments? Um, well, yes, I would. Um, I'm actually uh, very interested in the economics equations. And together with the feminist economists, um, Diane Elson, Radhika Balakrishnan, mm -hmm. and I'm very much aware that there's a loop of economic, social, and cultural rights. I also believe that the question of bodily autonomy links very much to the creative uh, impetus that human beings have. So I would encourage economists and others who are interested in functioning societies to be sure to address that gender lens. Everything is gendered. To a certain extent, race and ethnicity are also very important when we look at an economy. And in the past, there was the assumption that, you know, the imaginary person that we were helping was not who is really there. So um, I would encourage everyone to uh, be sure to reach out and ask questions. Not everyone is comfortable often talking about gender, race, dynamics, but it's intrinsically interesting, but also intrinsically uh, part of success. So I would like to wish you all um, great success in being able to explain the world and, be, and in being able to bring prosperity, especially for vulnerable 
women and girls. Thanks. Thank you so much. Um, I think those are excellent closing remarks and I, I think maybe even touches on some of the questions we didn't get to. Um, but thank you very much, Dr. Cannon, for taking part. And we're really, really grateful that you could find the time in your busy schedule to be with us. Um, it's been a real pleasure to have you and it's been a wonderful opportunity for me. Um, and I think for everyone here who came to listen to Dr. Cannon. So thank you to all of those in the audience who joined us today and to everyone who asked questions. I'm sorry if we couldn't get to them. Um, also, many, many thanks to the LSE Global Health Initiative, particularly Chanel Nunez for organizing this great event and for Dr. Tannen's team and those at LSE events. Thank you very much, everybody, and be well.